Let's make our way in our Bibles to 2 Corinthians, where we're going to be in chapter 8 this morning as we continue our journey through Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth. As you guys make your way that direction, um, I love that God gives the opportunity to teach the Bible this way. Uh, line upon line, chapter by chapter, precept upon precept. Uh, it's a huge blessing to me. But in doing so, what it means is uh, there's sometimes that I can't uh, skip topics that I would prefer to skip. And so there's actually protection in that for both of us. I can't just jump on hobby horses that I like to talk about. But it also means there's times where the whole thing gets awkward. And the only thing I know to do uh, is just join in the awkward and we just enjoy it all together. And so one of those topics that I uh, despise talking about is the topic of giving. It gives me the heebie-jeebies. I don't like to talk about money. And so I'm thankful that we go through Scripture and I don't have to talk about it until it comes up in Scripture. And then you get to 2 Corinthians and Paul talks about it for two straight chapters. Now I did, in my heart, think about just covering both chapters 8 and 9 in one Sunday. But then I thought, why do that when we could enjoy the awkward together for two straight weeks? And so we're just going to, you know, Snuggle up together. We're just going to enjoy this topic for two whole weeks, and we're going to go through it. But in doing so, I want to make it perfectly clear that uh, God is actually after the heart, that the heart is the heart of the matter. This is always the case in Scripture. And so as we begin to make our journey towards the eighth chapter, it's important to understand uh, what Paul is talking about and what he's really addressing here that's going on in Corinth. Now, in 1 Corinthians, you might recall, we, we spent uh, six months going through 1 Corinthians. And as we did, uh, Paul had encouraged the church there to take up an offering for the church back in Jerusalem. And so Paul's desire wasn't to take up an offering for himself personally. In fact, Paul worked while he was in Corinth. He was a tent builder. But what he did encourage them to do was to take up an offering for their brethren in Jerusalem that were struggling. There was a famine in the area of Judea. Financially, they had fallen on hard times. And so Paul has encouraged them to take up a collection. And the reality was, for these that were there in Corinth, um, without the church in Jerusalem, there's likely no church in Corinth. You think about those church fathers. Uh, we're talking about James, half-brother to Jesus. We're talking about the Apostle Peter. We're talking about the Apostle John. And so these guys are, are foundational members of the early church. And without them, there is likely no church in Corinth whatsoever. And so Paul's encouraging them in this, no doubt with this on his mind. He's also likely encouraging them to give to the church in Jerusalem because there is this divide right now that's happened between Jew and Gentile. There are these new Gentile believers and what Scripture tells us about us as Gentiles is we're grafted in, but we're kind of like the wild olive branch. I mean, here's the olive tree and then in comes the Gentile and we're kind of like, the, whoa! I mean, we're a little wild. I mean, we're out there and, and yet we're a part of the same root system as the Jew that's there all relying upon God the Father. And so he's welcoming them, encouraging them to include the wild olive branch that's being grafted in. And so they're getting this opportunity. But as uh, Paul is going to encourage them through this chapter and the next, there's something else happening, that there are those that had come into Corinth that were false prophets. And these false prophets had tried to convince the Corinthians that Paul's just like every other preacher you see on TV, you turn it on, and what are they after? Money, money, money. Somehow God's broke. Not sure how he filed for chapter 11, but God is, he is God of the universe 
really bad with finances. And so they, they've tried to convince the, these Corinthians that this is what Paul's all about. He's just about the money. And so Paul is going to go through this to make sure they understand this is not about him. This is about their relationship with God. And so all that to say, uh, a year has passed since this first letter was written. And for the Corinthians, um, they had taken up exactly no offering. Zero, zip, zilch, bubkis. This is how well they have done with this recommendation that Paul had had for them in the first letter. So with that in mind, we dig into uh, chapter 8, verse 1, where Paul says, Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. Now remember, we're in Corinth, which is located in southern Greece, in this area of Achaia is their region they were known as. Now in the north, up in the mountain territory, uh, there were those that existed in Macedonia. This is that region of northern Greece. It was more mountainous. And what you find is really you've got those that kind of grew up in the hills and the hollers, and they were the rednecks of Greece. This is the Macedonians. They didn't have a lot of money. There were hard-working people up there in uh, northern Greece. And, and now you've got the pretty boys down south. These were the ones who were tanned. They're down along the Mediterranean. They're looking good. They've got a little more money. And so you've got this disparity between these two groups that is taking place. Chapter 8, verse 2 says, that in the great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, beyond their ability, they were free, they were freely willing. And so those who were up in Macedonia that didn't have the financial wherewithal of the Corinthians down south, uh, not only had they given, but they had given with great liberality. They'd given from a place of struggle and persecution and poverty. They had actually given uh, over and above in spite of their circumstances. Now, in the region of Macedonia, if you think about churches there, there are churches like uh, Thessalonica, where the Thessalonians, uh, Paul wrote two letters to them, uh, Berea from Acts chapter 17, and then most notably uh, Philippi, where the letter to the Philippians was written. So this is the group he's talking about and giving commendation to because in spite of their circumstances, they gave out of their uh, lack, they gave an abundance, if that makes sense. Now, all this in Mark chapter 12 uh, reminded me of the story where Jesus, just 30 years prior to this letter being written, he's there in the temple courts. And as he's there in the temple courts in Mark 12, uh, in this outer courtyard area is where you would put your uh, giving, your offering would actually go out in this area. And men and women uh, that were of Jewish descent, they were able to go into this area and they were able to give into the offering boxes. Now coming up out of the offering boxes, there were these large brass, it sort of looked like funnels that you would put your money into and it would go down into the box. But because they were made out of metal, uh, whatever you dropped in would make a little sound. And so it's with this in mind that now Jesus sat opposite the treasury and he saw how people put their money into the treasury. And many who were rich put in much. Now how would Jesus know how much they put in? Well, remember, these are brass funnels that went up, that went down into the treasury. So those who had a lot of change in their pocket going jingalingaling, they would drop it in there from a little bit higher than they really needed to to make sure that as it went down, it sounded like a Vegas slot machine. I mean, just So you could tell that they were giving much. They were making a big deal about their giving. So this is the scene. Verse 42, Then one poor widow came and threw in two mites, 
which make a quadrants. That is in our money today, a one eighth of one penny. And so verse 43, he called the disciples to himself and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who had given to the treasury, for they all put out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had her whole livelihood. And this would have flown completely in the face of what these Galilean disciples had grown up with. That those who put in much, they must be so super righteous. Yet Jesus turns the whole thing upside down and points out this, that it wasn't about the amount, it was all about the heart. Notice with me in verse 41, Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw not how much they gave, but how they gave. The way in which they gave was what Jesus was really paying attention to. And so for these Philippians who were giving, they were giving from a place of joy, a place of of abundance that actually flowed from their heart. This is the spot that they gave from. And there's maybe no church that was more joyful than the Philippians. And if you, you don't believe me, read the letter that Paul wrote to them. It's the most joyful of all the epistles that he would write. And so Paul wrote to them who were so very joyful. And, and this is what I wanted to point out, is that if you're struggling in a spot of, of harshness and selfishness and just general grumpiness, one of the best ways to get out of it is to give. That, that our giving is directly tied to our heart. And so as we give, and as we get an opportunity to give, what we're really doing essentially is we're giving away our harshness and our selfishness. He's going to continue in this spot. He says here in verse 4, uh, imploring uh, us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering of the saints. Not only did the Philippians give, or when they gave, And they wrote the check out, if you will. Paul got the check and he looked at it and he said, whoa, wait a minute. You guys, like, that's a lot. That's a really big number. Are you sure? Are you okay with this? Paul was concerned himself that maybe they'd overdone it a little bit. And yet, look at their reaction, imploring us with much urgency. They're like, no, you don't understand. You have to take this. We want to do this. This is coming from a place of love and care and affection for the church in Jerusalem. And so they implore, they pressed it upon Paul. Why? Because they understood what Jesus would say back in Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, verse 21. Jesus says this, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Our heart is directly linked to our wallet. And they knew that. Their heart was in Jerusalem. They wanted to give to Jerusalem. They wanted to give really to King Jesus. And so as they were giving to them, what they're really giving is a piece or a portion of themselves away. You understand that's the case with us when it comes to giving. As we give, what we're really doing is we're giving ourselves into that. We're like, I believe enough in this that I'm willing to give some of my hard-earned dollars into this thing because I believe what God is up to in this spot. Now back to verse 5. He says, And not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord, and then to us by the will of God. And so it wasn't just money that they were giving, but they were giving themselves. I want to point this out about uh, giving. And this is maybe one of the uh, dumbest things you're ever going to hear a pastor say. Um, If in giving it causes you to, to do it begrudgingly, or you get upset about it, or it bothers you at all inside, here's what I want you to do. Keep it. Don't bother. God doesn't need your money that bad. That's just the truth. 
Like if you really consider what Scripture says, here's Psalm chapter 50, verse 10. It says this, For the beast, for every beast of the field is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. It's all God's. Psalm 24, verse 1 says, The earth and the fullness thereof is mine. So it's all the Lord's. It all belongs to Him. He doesn't need it. He's not about to file for chapter 11 anytime soon. And so it's all His. And what He's really after when it comes to our giving, what He's actually after is something far more valuable. He's after you. That's what He's actually after. He's after our hearts. And so this is His desire. And this is one of my favorite quotes that I put in the notes. um, That an open heart leads to an open hand. It's no longer out of obligation that these Philippians were able to give because an open heart led them to be open-handed. They realized that it was all God's anyway. So all we're really doing is giving back to Him that which He's already given to us. And so this is the this place that they were at. And, and note with me in verse 5, He says, as they gave of themselves and then to us by the will of God, they were able to partner with God through their giving, to do His will, and they were excited about it. It was all His to begin with, and they get to be on God's team. And this is the place they were coming from. Verse 6, So we urged Titus that as he had begun, so he would also complete this grace in you as well. But as you abound in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all diligence, and in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace Also, these Corinthians were so very gifted. God had given them so much. I mean, they're living out there on the beach. They're tanned. They're tall, dark, and handsome. They're great orators. They've got money coming out of their ears. And then God gives them spiritual blessings. He gives them the ability to have prophecy and speaking in tongues and and all these beautiful gifts. And yet, they lacked in this grace. Romans chapter 12 as Paul is describing to the church in Rome about spiritual gifts, he says in verse 6, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, then let us prophesy in proportion to our faith, our ministry. Let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. What Paul's desire was for these Corinthians is to put off their selfishness and to put on giving in this grace, in this gift, and do it liberally. I mean, be able to give from a heart liberally because you know you've been given so very much. But giving in this way is not possible unless we first give ourselves to Him. Unless we first give ourselves over to Jesus, it will always be some kind of an issue in us. But when we give ourselves to Him, we realize what little we had to actually offer to Him. And what He turned around and gave to us as a result, we can then give freely. Lord, my hands are open. My heart is open. Take whatever you would like. Thank you. You do it from a place of thankfulness. Now, verse 8. I speak not by commandment, but I am testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. Paul wants to make it clear I'm not laying down the law to you. When we think about this, the the law in and of itself, there's 613 commandments in the Old Testament. We often think of Exodus 20. There's the top 10 list. That's not actually accurate. There's 613 things 
in the Old Testament you must do if you want to live and die by the law. We can't keep the top ten list. That's too much for us. But there's actually 613 things that we should do. But in that, the law wasn't the problem. You see, the problem was me. I'm the issue. You're the issue. Our own heart is the problem. This is why Paul, in writing about the law, he says in Galatians 3.24 that the law was perfect at what God sent it to do. It's a schoolmaster. A schoolmarm to point us to the fact that we can't do it. We must have one who intercedes on our behalf. We need a Savior. And so the law, the big issue is, it's perfect and yet it can never make a convert of the heart. That we can have all these rules and all these regulations and all this discipline and yet it can never make a convert of my heart. And so, when we consider then what does it look like in terms of uh, being a New Testament giver, here's the thing. That the law, it, it always it said this, that if you do this, you're going to live. But living by the Spirit, we find that in the Spirit, if you live this, you'll do. The law says do this and live. The Spirit says live this and you'll do. And what I mean by that is Jesus, in speaking of giving, Matthew chapter 6, verse 2, again at the Sermon on the Mount. He says this in verse 2, Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a, a trumpet. That's what they called those brass instruments that came out of the boxes. Trumpets before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. So he says, if you want to give, you're not to, to give in a way that other people notice and pat you on the back. But I brought that, I brought that verse to mind because Jesus says, when you do a charitable deed, it, it's not a matter of, of if as New Testament Christians, but it's, it's when. Because the Spirit says, if you live by this, you will do naturally. It'll just be a part of who you are. And the same is true for us. That as it becomes a part of us, as it becomes a part of our life, we just naturally give to others. And, and here's another truth for us. Um, our actions always imply our belief. I can sit up here and tell you all kinds of things, but if you don't see it play out in my actions, you're going to question whether or not I truly believe that. My actions really imply what I believe. They show what I truly believe inside. So verse 9, as Paul continues, he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor, that you through His poverty might become rich. If you want to consider how much Jesus gave, I'll turn with you to what Paul wrote to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. <clears throat> he says, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So here's Jesus, King of the universe. He pours himself into a human body to be taken care of by two poor teenagers of all things. So poor that they couldn't afford a place to actually lay him when he was born. They had to borrow a cradle for him to have a place to lay his head. And then as he goes through his life so poor that when he goes out to preach, he doesn't have his abode of his own to preach from. He's got to borrow one to give a message from on the Sea of Galilee. So 
poor that when he wanted to have a meal with his followers, he had to borrow a room on the night before he would give his life to even have a place to be able to eat so poor that when he gave his life for you and I, that he had to borrow a grave to be able to be buried, you see. This is what he did for us. And if you want to think about who he was prior to that, John chapter 1, verse 1 says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. It was all His. It is all His. And yet He willingly chose to become poor so that you and I might become rich. So that you and I can enjoy in the riches that He has for all of eternity. He became poor for us. And these believers in Macedonia, they got that. They understood what Jesus had given up for them. And, and as they gave to the church in Jerusalem, they were actually able to become a picture of Jesus. Not a perfect type, but a type of Him as He gave His life for you and I. They partnered along with Him in this kind of a giving. Now in verse 10, And in this I give advice. It is to your advantage not only to be doing what you began and were desiring to do a year ago. Paul wants to point something out. Look, as I gave you this opportunity to give to the church in Jerusalem, you guys thought this was a good idea. You were excited about the chance to be able to give. And yet what happened is, as they desired and as God moved on their heart, a little something that took place in Corinth like happens with us often, um, we let time pass. And what happens when time passes? Uh, I don't know about you, but I forget. And, and that, that desire that was on my heart that I was so moved by, I began to, to walk away from that. I began to forget what was happening in that spot to which Paul says in verse 11, but now you also must complete the work of doing it and that there was readiness to desire it so there may be a completion out of what you have. In, in other words, according to the Brock Ashley version, uh, the Lord moved on your heart. By the way, that's the BAV. When I publish it, you guys will be able to pick up a copy. Uh, what, what, uh, in my version, the way this reads is, they were doing a bunch of talky, talky, talk, talky. Now it's the time for them to do it! You heard it from the Lord, now go do something about it! This is what Paul is saying. You've heard the word. He's moved on your heart. Now you've got a chance to don't talk about it. Back it up. Do it. This is my advice to you. We can take notes on things in church Sunday morning all we want. You know as you jot down notes, that's not the same as actually doing something. That doing something requires an action. James, the half-brother of Jesus, said this, and, and I fall in this camp far too often, but James says in verse 22 of the first chapter, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in the mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and then immediately forgets what kind of man he was. We get a picture in the Word often, and we see it so clearly, and yet we don't do anything, and we are just like this man. We, we turn and we walk away, and then we completely forget. As Jesus was addressing His disciples on the night that He would give His life, John chapter 13, He had just got done washing their feet, and He says to them this in verse 17, 
If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. But the blessing doesn't happen without the doing. It's one thing to know. It's great to have head knowledge. Vision is great. But what God actually desires from us is obedience. He desires us to be obedient in that way. I want to share with you a personal story, but I'm going to give it with this caveat. Um, oftentimes I share with you stories and I am uh, the villain because most of the time uh, I'm kind of a turd. And so, uh, But in this story, uh, I'm not going to be quite so turdish. I'm going to uh, come out better, but, but I'm sharing this thing in a way personally so that uh, not to make myself look better, but so that it might relate to you. And so I'm going to dance on the line of seemingly talking about something I've done, but but please understand the heart to try to be relatable because I think I'm not the only one that's been in this spot. So a few years back when we were in Missouri, God had uh, blessed our business and I was able to have a construction and and development company and and he was doing a lot of things in our life. It was great. But also at that same time, I become the assistant pastor at the church there at Parkland Chapel. And so uh, I had an office then at the church and one particular day during the week, I made my way into the office. And as I uh, pulled in, there was a vehicle there. And it was from a family that I had gotten to know pretty well. And I knew that they uh, loved Jesus. I mean, they, they didn't have much, but man, they loved the Lord with everything they had. And as I walked into the building, uh, their vehicle that they were driving at the time, it looked, this wasn't the picture of it uh, that I've got up on the screen, but that's how it looked. I mean, it was that bad. And so as I, I looked at that and, and just took a mental note of what I had seen, um, as I walked past the cab of the truck, I looked in there and there was a kid's car seat in the front. And my heart just broke. Because I'm thinking, here they are, they're doing the best they can with what they have. And yet they're having to put their baby in the front seat of that truck. And, and I know how my wife would feel. We just had brought a new baby home. Uh, it was heartbreaking. She wouldn't have been excited about this whatsoever. And so I walked into my office and I shut the door and in the manliest way I know how to tell you, um, I just broke down and cried. And I'm like, Lord, like here they are. They're, they're doing as much as they can. They're, they're, they're trying so hard. Yet this is what they have to get around to get from place to place. Like, God, why do you let these things happen? Why don't you do something about this situation? And what he said as he whispered into my ear as he said, I did. I let you see it. Snap. So I knew I could have let time go on and the feeling probably would have gone away. But instead, in that moment, I picked up the phone and I called my friend that owned the Chevy dealership down the street. And we took care of the problem right then and there. And the only people up until now that knew about that were me and a car dealer friend of mine and Jesus. That was it. And so again, I'm not saying this to to brag on that at all. I'm saying that in that moment the decision was made. There was a vision that was clear. It required obedience out of me. And do you know who really got blessed in that? Me. Because every Sunday when I walked into church and I saw that vehicle with the baby car seat in the back where it's supposed to be and they had reliable wheels. Man, it blessed my stinking socks off. That's the kind of blessings that He has in mind for us as we become obedient to His Word. Now, verse 12, Paul is going to continue. He says, For if there is first a willing mind, it is accepted according to the one who has, and not according to 
uh, what he does not have. As I share that story, some of you in your mind are going, I can't do that. Here's what God's actually after. Um, do what you can. There's something that you can do. And even if you're coming from a spot where you might go, you know, I have so little, the request from God is to do what little you can with what little you have. And then stand back and watch what the Lord can do with that. Watch what God can do with the little that you have to do, with the little you have to give. And be prepared to be amazed because He can do amazing things with just a little amount. He continues in verse 13. He says, For I do not mean that the others should be eased and you burdened, but by an equality that now, that at this time, your abundance may supply their lack, that their abundance also may supply your lack, that there may be equality. What the Philippians lacked was finances. And yet they gave from a place where they could give from. From their lack, they gave in abundance. But what they were really giving a, a tremendous supply of was mercy. They were giving a tremendous amount of mercy over. Jesus, in Luke chapter 6, verse 38, as it concerns giving, would say this. He says, give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure you use, it will be measured back to you. You see, I don't know about you, but when I stand before my king, I want to be measured by a measuring stick of mercy. Mercy is not getting what I do deserve. And what I actually deserve is hell and death. As good as I can try to clean it up, that's what I deserve. I want him to be merciful upon me. And then what I want to receive is I want to receive his grace. Grace is receiving that which I do not deserve. And so as I get the opportunity to stand before the king, I'm not going to talk to him about my bank account. I want him to look at me with eyes of mercy and grace. And so it doesn't matter if it's money or mercy, goods or grace, whatever we extend, that measure is how we're going to be measured back. And so my desire for the Father is to him, for him to look merciful upon me as sinner. And his promise is to do so. So we have this tremendous opportunity for us to be merciful and then receive mercy on the other end. For as it is written, verse 15, he who gathered much had nothing left over, and he who gathered little had no lack. Paul here quotes from the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 16, verse 18, which seems like a, a weird place for Paul to go. But he, here in verse 18 it says, So when they measured it in omers, speaking of manna, he who gathered much had nothing left over, and he who gathered little had no lack. Every man had gathered according to his each one's need. Now, manna in the Old Testament is always a picture of God's provision. You think about the children of Israel as they're being brought through the wilderness. They've got no food to eat in the desert. And so every morning they would wake up and God would give them bread from heaven. He would give them a provision. And all they had to do was walk out and pick it up off the ground. Now they looked at it. God said, this is bread from heaven. They looked at it, much like you and I do, and they went, what is it? And so God allowed them to call it manna, which in Hebrew means, what is it? And so they would go out and collect the what is it, but God's idea of this is, I only want you to collect today 
for what you need today. Now, he knew their wicked hearts that they would try to collect a little more. I mean, it's not so bad for me to have a a little stockpile of your provision, right, Lord? And and so what would happen is as they collected just the the little more they thought they needed, it's it's a good thing for them to have a little more of this, a little more of that, that that what would take place is the next morning it would have uh, maggots and flies and it would be rotten. This is, by the way, exactly how my disobedience and my greed plays out in my life. It almost always turns itself into rot and decay, and it stinks up the room. And it rots me from the inside out. Now, all that to say, what the Lord desires is for us to depend upon Him daily for a provision. Now, you might hear that story and go, okay, so God just wants me to give everything away, sell it all, and give it all. That's what the Lord has in store. And I would say, if you took that from what I just shared, you completely missed the point. It's not about that whatsoever. It's not about stuff. It's about faith. His desire for the children of Israel was for them to have faith. If you consider the father of the faith, Abraham. Abraham, by the way, was not a poor guy. In fact, in the known world, he was one of the richest men alive. How rich? He had 318 trained bodyguards that worked for him. Any of you got an entire army of 318 people? That's what I thought. Abraham had some money. And yet, when God called upon Abraham to give his most valuable possession away, his only begotten son, Isaac, he took him to the top of Mount Moriah and he laid him upon the altar and he was ready to give up the thing that meant more to him in his life than anything else. He was willing to walk away from it. This is what the Lord has called us to do. In fact, Philippians chapter 4, verse 12, Paul writes this, I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. And in verse 13, he says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Where do you actually draw your strength? Is it from your 401k? Is it from your bank account or is it from the Lord Jesus? His desire is is for our possessions not to possess us. For them to just simply be tools that the Lord has given us so that we can go out and minister and do His great work. Now verse 16 as we continue to head down the home stretch. But thanks be to God who puts the same earnest care for you into the heart of Titus. For he not only accepted the exhortation, but being more diligent, He went to you of His own accord. And so, here in this spot, the Corinthians, they were so bogged down with stuff that Titus was moved like the Apostle Paul, and they both had a heart for these Corinthians to be free, to be out of their jail, where its stuff had just literally clogged them up, and they couldn't see the other side. Verse 18, he says here, And we have sent uh, with him the brother whose praise is in the gospel throughout all the churches. So who is this man that went along with Titus to go to Corinth? I have no idea. I don't really know. Some have projected it might be Luke who wrote uh, Acts and wrote the Gospel of Luke. But here's what I do know about him. Here's his testimony. That he is a brother whose praise is in the Gospel. What a great testimony. Man, if we're going to have a testimony, wouldn't you want to be known as a brother whose praise is in the good news of Jesus Christ? Now, as we continue, verse 19, And not only that, but who also 
was chosen by the churches to travel with the use of this gift, which is administered by us to the glory of the Lord Himself, and to show your mind ready, avoiding this, that anyone should blame us in this lavish gift which is administered by us, providing honorable things, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. Paul was asking for them to give liberally, and it was going to be a sizable gift, not for himself, but for others. And yet Paul knew, the minute I start talking about money and asking about finances, I have to be prepared for questions that are going to come. And accountability is a necessity. That any time we handle money or finance for the Lord or for other people, it has to be done with accountability and integrity. And so as we as a church uh, collect things like tithes and offerings, uh, we make sure to be accountable in that, that there are always two present, they're never related, there's always accountability in that. Because we want to be able to stand before God and man in this. There must be accountability. Now we don't operate like other churches, we don't have a congregational government, there's not, not going to be any business meetings. Many of you that have been to a business meeting in church are like, thank you Jesus. Yes, that's how I feel too. There's not going to be uh, any of that. And yet, if at any point in time you want to see the budget, if you want to see, heck, the check register, just ask. We're happy to be forthcoming with it. We want to protect people. But at the same time, you can see any doggone thing you want to see. So all that to say, our methods are to be uh, men that are above reproach. This is what those scriptures really speak to from Hebrews and First Peter and First Timothy. I won't read them all for you, but in First Timothy three two he says that as leaders we are called to be blameless or to be above reproach. There should be no questions asked based upon the way we handle our finances and the way we handle the work of the church. Now that said, if you're curious about the focus that we're to have as a church, as an organization, here's our focus. Here's what the Lord gave me. Uh, we are called to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Oftentimes we think church is a place where people be getting saved. And it's a great thing if people be getting saved in the church. I'm happy to lead anybody to know Jesus. It's a wonderful blessing, but you can do that right in the spot you're in. You don't need me. So I'm happy for that to be it. But the truth is the church is actually here so that the saints can be equipped for the work of the ministry. So as you go out into the relationships you have and the highways and the byways, you can actually come alongside people because you've been properly and well equipped. Now when it comes to how we are called to give, uh, as a church we desire to give by example. The best possible way I know to handle ourselves is to do things by example. So the first 10% of anything we are given, we turn around and we give it back away. We give it away to ministries, and if you want to know more about them, they're out there on the board, and they are so very blessed when we get the chance to turn around and give to those ministries. And so we want to give by example. And the way that we approach finances, I can give you this as my word, we will make our requests known before God and not before man. So at any point in time, if we have a great need, uh, we want to do a big building campaign, uh, there's not going to be any one of those thermometers up there. And besides, I've told you before, I don't like the thermometer. I like the yodeler guy from The Price is Right. So if I was doing something, I'd have that guy that went, yole, 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 and he'd go off the edge. We're not going to do that. But if we did, I'd have the yodeler guy. But all that to say, we're not going to make our request known to you. We're going to make our request known to God. 
can provide all of our needs. What Paul says to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 is this. He says in chapter 4, if I can get there, verse 6, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. He's where we will turn to. That's where we will go to. And guess what? If the Lord doesn't want us to do something, He won't provide the finances, and we won't be able to do that thing. But when we get an opportunity, um, like we did this past week to a orphanage in the Philippines who had a need and let us know that need, uh, we didn't call everybody together and have a big vote. Um, what we did was we talked about it, and then we wrote a check. And that's it. It wasn't any harder than that. And we sent it to them, and their need was met, and they were blessed. And so should I do a better job of telling you that? I probably should tell you from time to time those things. But the point is, um, we turn things over to the Lord, and if He supplied an, an opportunity for us to meet that need, we meet it. Now, all that to get us to the last verses. And we have sent with them our brother, whom we have often proved diligent in many ways, but now much more diligent because of the great confidence we have in you. If anyone inquires about Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker concerning you. Or if our brethren are inquired about their messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ, therefore show to them and before the churches the proof of your love and of our boasting on your behalf. As Paul wraps up, this is him giving the church one last little pep talk. I know you can do it. I know you've got it in you. Here's the pep talk. And what I love about this, Paul is bragging about this church before they ever actually gave. He knew they were going to. He knew with confidence he could stand before them and say, I, I can't wait for you to show what I've been telling everybody about you. And as we consider our lives as we go forward, do you understand that often we get this picture in our mind that Jesus is up there God's up there as a father, and every time we mess up, he's like, oh, I told you, I knew you were a mess up, I knew it was coming, and God the Father's just ready to smack us down at any minute. And that couldn't be further from the truth. You see, because God the Father is never at any point in time surprised by any of our failures. I am constantly surprised by my failures. I can't believe how I mess up. I find new ways every day to mess things up. God is at no point in time shocked. But what is actually occurring between the Father and the Son as the enemy wants to speak lies into your ears and wants you to believe it, here's what Jesus is doing at the right hand of the Father. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. One last place to go before we wrap up. This is worth you highlighting. Therefore, He is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. You want to know what Jesus is doing? He lives. He loves to sit at the right hand of the Father and make intercession for you. All those lies, all those things you want to listen to, they get bounced in there. You tell them, my Savior lives to make intercession for me. To stand in the gap to talk about me in a good way to the Father, to say to the Father, no, no, Dad, this one's mine. That's not who He is whatsoever. He's got a robe of righteousness. Let me tell you about Him. Let me brag to you about how He or she are going to succeed in this spot. 
And so, Father, we thank you and we praise you for the opportunity to give. Lord, thank you that the first thing and really, truly, the only thing you want us to give is us. Lord, help us to be able to freely and openly give ourselves to you. And as we get the opportunity to give ourselves to you openly, freely, and willingly, it opens our hands to the point where we don't have to operate with closed fists any longer. Lord, thank you for what you're doing in our hearts. Thank you for what you're doing in this place. And Lord, we we come with a heart that is ready and willing and open to you. In Jesus' name.